Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi there. My name is Zach Twomley. Very happy Christmas to you if you're listening to this on the 26th of December. What are you doing? Going to spend time with your families or something? You shouldn't be here. I'm just kidding. You're very welcome, and I'm very happy to have you. This is episode 18 of the Versailles Anniversary Project, so make sure and go and listen to the past episodes if you haven't already. Why do you always say that, Zach? Well, because sometimes people actually message me or email me asking what the story is with the latest episode. They don't understand it. Why am I on episode 18? No, really, that does happen. So, I don't say this for no reason. I also think it's nice to have a bit of a welcome. And you are very welcome to this podcast. The Versailles Anniversary Project is something that I'm able to spend time on thanks to the support of my lovely patrons. So, if you would like to support this podcast monetarily and get some pretty sweet things in return, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click the link in the description below. If you listened to the previous alt history episodes that I redid for you guys, then you will know that we recently added a new goal. When we get to $2,000 a month, 
on Patreon, we will be doing something very, very special indeed. If you weren't aware, it involves looking at an alternative history question, which I've been asked to cover so many times over. Ever since I did that alternative history series on asking what would have happened if Gavrido Princip missed, and look just below this episode if you want to listen to that, but ever since I did that, I've been asked, hey Zach, why don't you do something on the Second World War, or the American Civil War, or that kind of thing? I say nay to the American Civil War, at least for the moment, but I will be looking at a critical question. What if Nazi Germany won the Second World War? Isn't that an interesting question? Maybe the whole idea of it sounds impossible, but I have an idea about the way I'm going to approach it, and I'm really looking forward to unleashing it on you guys. So then maybe that's like a Christmas present all in itself, that announcement, because that's exactly what you wanted. But if you want to go and fund that, then go to patreon.com and, you know, Sign up for whatever level you would like to sign up at. For $2 a month, you can get the episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project and of the Korean War completely ad-free, which is nice. And you can also get the scripts for those episodes. So if you like to read along, if you like to follow my sources, because I footnote pretty much everything I say, then do go and do that. For $5 a month, you can get an hour of extra content every month, currently 1956, but in the past, we've also done the Jan Sobieski biography series. And in the future, we're going to be doing some pretty cool things too, such as the Age of Bismarck. So check that out. For $6 a month, you can partake in the Delegation Game. The Delegation Game, of course, involves you sending an imagined character to the Paris Peace Conference. And from the 18th of January 2019, I will be narrating your character's exploits, for better or for worse, every single Friday going through the experiences of your person and examining how they got on with other people that were sent there. We'll be voting in different polls, we'll be watching things transpire positively or negatively, and we'll be seeing what kind of difference we could have made in the, well, alternative version of the Paris Peace Conference that we are going to go to. It's going to be great fun, and it's going to help us all get more and more engaged with the Versailles Anniversary Project. 2019 is going to be a very exciting time for me, Kind of an intimidating time as well. I'll be taking on more responsibilities in the university that I'm lecturing in. And I will also be applying for Cambridge. Uh, in fact, I'll be going to Cambridge if everything works out. So there's never been a better time to be a listener. There's never been a better time to be a friend of Zach Twomley because I look really cool doing all the successful stuff. No, I'm just kidding. I look really cool and I feel wonderful because you guys have supported me so, so well over 2018. It's been a brilliant year and you have been a brilliant history friend. But if this is your very first time listening, then oh boy, (laughs) you poor thing, you have an awful lot to catch up on. But if you'd like to contact me in any of the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, all that kind of thing, I'd be happy to say hello. All right, guys, have a listen to this episode and make sure, of course, that you enjoy it. Between them, 
listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project episode 18. Today is the 26th of December 2018 and on this day in history 100 years ago occurred the following events. So don't worry guys this episode has been prepared many well the script says many weeks in advance wouldn't that be nice it's been prepared many days in advance and it's very likely that i'm currently in a food coma while you're listening to this so don't feel bad that you actually have podcasts during this time it's the result of preparation in any case it's very likely i am in a food coma enjoying my break from the insanity of this project much like those statesmen fortunate enough to get time off would have valued their momentary holiday break from their demanding task at hand a century ago For some, though, there was no rest for the wicked, or perhaps that should be the intensely idealistic. So let's see how one figure in particular, a century ago, reached the point where his sojourn to London appeared worth it. Enjoy it, guys, and I hope you're all having a safe and leisurely and food-filled and family-filled and love-filled and everything else Christmas time. Woodrow Wilson, as we know, was a trailblazer in many respects, but he also has the distinction of being the first American president to ever visit the United Kingdom. The new world was returning to the old, but the historical significance of this unprecedented act was largely lost and drowned out by the deafening cheers of those assembled in London. London's citizens, it seemed, were as eager to welcome the American president and cheer his vision as their counterparts in Paris. But Wilson was here for more important reasons than soaking in the adulation of British crowds. A century ago today, the day after Christmas of 1918, Woodrow Wilson simulated the arrival in Paris, where he had met with the French Premier and Head of State. Now he was to spend a great deal of time with the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, and King George V. The French charm had left a lasting impression upon Wilson and Edward House, but here was a chance for Lloyd George to reverse these impressions, and through some healthy Anglo-French competition, convince the idealistic American president that his interests were better served by siding with the old enemy. Wilson had cut quite a towering, powerful figure. He was the confident president here to defend his views and vision. He was a man that believed he spoke for the common people, and he felt thoroughly vindicated when, once more, an allied capital welcomed him enthusiastically. But was the trip to London even necessary? Why not just wait for the election to be counted, and for the British Prime Minister to travel across the Channel late in December? If the Big Three had determined that the time was right to proceed with the opening of the conference, say on the 18th of December rather than the 18th of January, then this would have made sense in several respects, because by then the majority of the votes would have been counted in Britain, and Wilson would have arrived in Paris. 
Yet, so long as the delegations dallied, the rest of the world seemed content to follow their lead. I can find no explanation for why the conference did not open on December 18th, recorded Harold Nicholson, before going on to suggest what he believes was a likely reason. The delay, Nicholson said, was caused by all manner of issues, ranging from locating suitable housing for the very delegations to determining exactly who these delegations would be composed of, protocol, mission statements, orders of precedence, rationalising the costs, forming contacts. These were all issues which enabled the conference to drag on once it had opened, but even before it did, these questions caused the potential delegates to pause. The infinitesimally complex itinerary which was to manifest itself in the months to come could not have been imagined even by Woodrow Wilson, yet the act of organising an entire city to host a conference and end a war was not one which could be done quickly. Bear in mind as well that all involved imagined that the first step was a preliminary conference, where the aims of all sides and the form of the final conference would be decided. Neither the most senior of delegates nor the lowliest printer knew what to expect. They were all flying by the seat of their pants, but this did not mean that some useful politicking could not be done in the meantime. Woodrow Wilson thus travelled to London because it was within his and Lloyd George's interests to make the trip. Wilson wanted to test the level of public support for his vision, and Lloyd George wanted to nab the American president and make him his friend before the French, Italians or Japanese entered the equation. To build these relationships and prepare the groundwork, these national figures had to meet each other in person first. Thus the most straightforward explanation for why the conference opened, probably a month later than was necessary, was because it was in the interests of those on the ground to ensure that this was the case. Several people believed that a delay was in their interest, but it was far from Woodrow Wilson's idea or his fault alone. As Nicholson explained, It is established that President Wilson himself had fixed that date, 18th of December, as the day of the opening. It is unfair to blame him, Wilson, for wasting the ensuing three weeks upon his visits to London and Rome. Those visits were unnecessary and were undertaken only to save the President's face, They were more than unnecessary, they were most disturbing. Few men could have resisted such an apotheosis. President Wilson reacted to it in a manner which was characteristic, but unfortunate. He became obsessed by the eyes of the dumb people. The crowds at Victoria Station, the crowds on the Corso in Rome, acclaimed him as the symbol of their own victory. He imagined that they acclaimed him as the symbol of the new Europe. These visits, these regrettable and hysterical visits, convinced Woodrow Wilson that the peoples of Europe were with him heart and soul. Here was a most misleading conviction. It is worth considering the possibility that Wilson so hungered for approval from the public of Europe because the opposition politicians in America, and even some members of the delegation he brought with him to Paris, deeply vexed and frustrated him. Wilson did not like being challenged or opposed. He also didn't like delegating too much, so it seemed especially when it came to something as important as his vision for a new world order where he was to play the leading role. The moment he arrived in Paris on the 14th of December, House had written in his diary that he found Wilson in an ugly mood towards Lansing. That is, Robert Lansing, Wilson's Secretary of State. Wilson blamed Lansing for selecting several members of the delegation's minor or technical staff without his knowledge. Much of Lansing's chosen picks happened to be Republicans by creed, a decision which Lansing arrived at to ease the chasm between the two parties, but which Wilson took personally. 
Wilson would probably never have taken it so personally had he not just lost Congress to these same Republicans. The two men, Secretary and President, had never got on particularly well, but this slight was bitterly received by Wilson before the boat had even departed for Paris, and it did not bode well for the solidarity of the American delegation in the future. Wilson thrived on the praise he received in the public domain because he knew that behind the scenes, his political rivals were sharpening their knives. In parrying their efforts, he did himself no favours. The Republicans might have been more inclined to be generous had Wilson taken some Republicans with him for the five-man delegation, which was tasked with doing the bulk of the public negotiating and grandstanding, while the 1,000 other Americans, as part of the delegation, gave advice and served their technical needs and used their expertise. However, Wilson's partisan perspective compelled him to bring not one Republican with him. House Lansing General Howard Tasker Bliss, who served on the Supreme War Council and was already in Paris, and Henry White, a man we'll probably never have cause to mention again, served on the five-man team, in addition, of course, to Wilson himself. House and Wilson were by far the most important of these, and the way these two men treated Lansing would eventually compel that man to vote against the whole Treaty of Versailles idea when it mattered most. As Margaret Macmillan wrote, Wilson had deliberately slighted the Republicans, most of whom had supported the war enthusiastically, and many of whom now shared his vision of a League of Nations. Even his most partisan supporters urged him to appoint men such as former Republican President William Taft, or the senior Republican Senator of the important Committee of Foreign Relations, Henry Cabot Lodge. Wilson refused with a variety of unconvincing excuses. The real reason was that he did not like or trust Republicans. His decision was costly, because it undercut his position in Paris and damaged his dream of a new world order with the United States at its heart. It was on the 14th of December that House and Wilson mapped out the next fortnight of meetings and foreign visits. Since it was known that the British Prime Minister would not be present, Wilson was provided with an opportunity to build upon the French rapport which House had made, and to draw the Italians closer together with a state visit early in the new year. House recalled a meeting between himself, Wilson and Clemenceau on the 15th of December, this being the first proper meeting the three had had since the President arrived in the country. Away from the cheering crowds, Wilson would have to rely upon his own personality and the eagerness of the French Premier to get on with him. Thanks to some strategic agenda setting, the meeting went well, as House recalled. I did little or nothing to guide the conversation, for it was felicitous from start to finish. I have never seen an initial meeting a greater success. The President was perfect in the matter, and the manner of his conversation, and Clemenceau, was not far behind. Neither said anything that was particularly misleading. They simply did not touch upon topics which would breed discussion. I saw to that in advance. I took Clemenceau downstairs afterward, and he expressed keen delight over the interview and the President personally. The President was equally happy when I returned upstairs and discussed the matter with him. It was a pleasant augury for success. The mutual desire the two sides had to get on and cooperate at the British expense manifested itself here. Clemenceau seemed perfectly sensitive to Wilson's needs and aims and appeared determined to not present any difficulties to the American President's efforts. The French Premier, quite simply, was on his best behaviour, but the true litmus test would come when the three leaders were together at once. Judging by House's record indeed, Clemenceau was preparing to combat the British directly and to cosy up to the Americans even more extensively. 
A good example of this can be seen in the fact that, where once Clemenceau had opposed Wilson, taking part directly in the conference, now he seemed to have been won over to the President's participation. House recalled that, regarding this issue, Clemenceau said, According to the protocol, it is not right, but damn the protocol. Let's do what we please. Poincaré will want to sit in and I will have to fight with him, but I do not mind that. I rather enjoy it. I will also have to fight with Lloyd George, but that too I do not mind. If you think Italy will be with us, France, Italy and the United States will be three out of four, and we will do it whether the English like it or not. While Lloyd George was basking in his political victory then, Wilson was exhausting himself in the last two weeks of December during his tour of France in politics and in the countryside. House expressed his frustration in his diary that the president had not appointed more influential American politicians to the five-man delegation. The likes of General Tasker Bliss were one-dimensional and useful only for the military questions of the day. Whenever a political matter or a sensitive diplomatic question had to be addressed, though, it was up to Wilson and often to House alone to solve it. It is difficult to chronicle except meagerly the meanderings of the last few days, House wrote on the 17th of December. House then recorded a meeting he had with Lord Northcliffe, the British newspaper baron and sworn enemy of David Lloyd George, that same day. The end result was interesting because it was here that House seemed to have come out with the idea that Wilson should travel to London. If Wilson did this, and if the British people welcomed him there as the French had so welcomed him in Paris, then Lloyd George would see for himself precisely how popular the President's vision was, and, the idea went, he would not dare stand against his tide of opinion and oppose it. We've discerned the perils of relying solely on House's diaries before, but for the sake of summarising the space of time between Wilson's arrival in Paris and his departure for London, they do suffice. Admittedly, House's repeated expressions of surprise at the different figures demanding his presence alongside the President do get a bit much, but House was just detailed enough in his diary to provide us with an accessible and concise account where the main events are highlighted and extraneous detail is ignored. On the 18th of December, America's five-delegate team met together to plan for some approach to the conference. On the 19th of December, Clemenceau met with the President and House again. And the League of Nations was here introduced to the French Premier in its most complete form. House thought that Wilson talked well, but that... He did not put the plan for a League of Nations as I thought it should be put. Neither did he argue as to the freedom of the seas in a way which I thought was most effective. He seems to have forgotten a good deal of what we agreed upon at Magnolia regarding the Covenant for a League of Nations, and I shall take occasion sometime to have this out with him again. It seems necessary for him to get his mind refreshed. Adding to this, House opined on Clemenceau's personal views on the League and its viability, saying, I thought the President indiscreet when he told Clemenceau, among other things, that the American people were anti-British and that the easiest thing in the world would be to get them to build a navy larger than the British Navy. Clemenceau expressed himself in a mild way, in agreement with the President. He thought a League of Nations should be attempted, but he was not confident of success, either of forming it or of its being workable after it was formed. The truth is, he believes in war. He is something of the Roosevelt idea that war enables. The same day it was decided that Wilson would travel to London on the 26th of December and remain until the 30th, whereupon he would depart for Rome. Again, Wilson and Lloyd George had something to gain from the trip, as it presented Lloyd George with the opportunity to reverse Wilson's evident anti-British bias, 
and to soothe what negative views of deliberate British mischief-making the president might have had. Wilson, meanwhile, could use the anticipated welcome in the capital in his negotiations, having lost the mandate of the American people and having fudged his own platform back home, Wilson was evidently desperate to make use of whatever public support he could. If the Americans would not vote for him, at least the British, French and Italian people would cheer for him. That had to count for something. Indeed, it counted because it made a formidable first impression upon David Lloyd George, which was maintained for the remainder of the Paris Peace Conference. In spite of their clear differences in ideology and aims, Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson discovered from the beginning that they saw eye to eye on many questions, and that matters were not nearly so testy when it came to disagreements when they did not. As Lloyd George himself recalled in his memoirs on the peace, When I first encountered Wilson, it was with mixed feelings. I certainly felt no hostility towards him, but I was very curious to know what he was like. At our first meeting at Charing Cross Station, the frankness of his countenance and the affability and almost warmth of his greeting won my goodwill, and as far as I was concerned, he never lost it. I sat opposite to him for months in the same small Parisian room. I conversed with him repeatedly in private, and I broke bread with him on a few occasions. I therefore had all the opportunity that anyone could desire for forming an estimate of this notable and towering figure in his day. The favourable personal impression made on my mind by our first handshake was deepened by my subsequent meetings. He was even-tempered and agreeable. He had the charm which emanates from a fine intelligence, integrity of purpose and complete absence of cantankerousness. He was stiff, unbending, uncommunicative, but he was pleasant almost to the confines of geniality. The reception which awaited Woodrow Wilson on the day after Christmas 100 years ago should have been colder, and yet not even the weather appeared to obey the expectations of the more cynical among Wilson's staff. The December sun shone through the cool, clear, dry air. This enabled Wilson to mirror his previous adventure in Paris and to enter London in triumph with an open-top car down the city's streets. The procession was tightly controlled, as Wilson made his way from Charing Cross Station to Buckingham Palace, a distance of less than a mile, but which certainly took longer than normal here. The trip was elongated by adding some winding additional streets to the trip, which roughly doubled it, but still, Wilson was hardly going to get a feel for the dingy post-war atmosphere which London exuded by speeding down this decked-out route. As if to compensate for the shabbiness of their tired capital, flags of both states had been draped along the entirety of the route, which splashed colour around like never before. Inevitably, of course, as much because he was a celebrity or as because they agreed with his message, the route was dense with people. One of the best accounts of this visit was provided by the Manchester Guardian, which noted in its main story the following day on the 27th of December, 1918, In a long memory of London's street scenes, one cannot recall anything quite like this welcome in its mass and impressiveness, its spontaneous cordiality. All the gaiety pent up through the cruel four and a half years seemed to be released in the great noise of cheering that rose around the leader of the world's peace. Londoners flocked by the tens of thousands into the narrow two miles of street to see him. There was not nearly room for all and multitudes would know that the president had come only by hearing the boom of these saluting guns. 20,000 soldiers with bayonets, bright in the December sunshine, lined the route. Guards in the war cahi rode before the carriage. But this was not a military show. The plain citizen raising a tall hat in response to the cheers was the centre of it all. 
when the cavalry escort came jingling out of the sanded courtyard at Charing Cross, preceding the carriage in which the President and King George sat side by side, a roar of cheers went up. It gathered volume all the way round the West End to the palace. The Manchester Guardian also remarked on Wilson's physical form. He was not only solid and confident, but also possessing of a warm smile, which evidently those photographs of before had failed to capture. Wilson appeared in this moment more like a man of the people than at any other time. The crowd took to the President's impressive profile from the moment his silhouette could be seen by the most distant of onlookers. And, so the Manchester Guardian continued, It did not seem like the grim austere figure of the photographs and cartoons. The wrinkled aesthetic is a legend. This President Wilson, who sat very erect beside the King, was a man with a powerful head and a full, fresh-coloured face, a face irradiated by that famous smile. The smile positively shone. The President was clearly genuinely pleased and moved by the good fellowship and hero-worship of the crowd. He raised his silk hat, women remarked that it was brand new, and waved it with a generous gesture. The cavalcade went away past St. Martin's Church. The bells rang out joyously, ringing a sharp note with the long, soft murmur of cheers. In the clear sky at this moment there appeared a flight of aeroplanes in arrowhead formation. It seemed to follow the procession as an aerial escort. The shine from the big red sun caught the planes and turned them into silver. A band played the president along into the wide pool of humanity collected in Trafalgar Square. As the carriages went by, the pavement had appreciative eyes for the president's wife, who sat in a carriage with our Queen and Princess Mary. Mrs. Wilson appeared to be thoroughly alive to every detail of the scene. Her black eyes sparkled. It was noted that Wilson's smile became somewhat weaker when passing by the select few protesters, or the women who urged Wilson to institute female suffrage in the United States, as the British government had recently done to a limited extent in the recent general election. These activists would have to wait. The United States would not boast full female suffrage until 1920, with the passage of the 19th Amendment, and Wilson had more pressing matters on his mind, he felt, than what women wanted. The reception nonetheless had been impressive and fulfilling. Wilson could easily point to it as the proof of his message's acceptance in Britain as well as France. If House's calculations were correct, then this would make working against the President's vision that much harder to do. But did David Lloyd George truly desire to work against Wilson's vision? Wilson certainly believed he did, and he also believed that he had naturally less in common with Lloyd George than he had with Clemenceau, because House had told him so, and because Lloyd George had been difficult in his opposition to the Freedom of the Seas motion in the past. Wilson was friendly and smiling in public, and he respected every protocol with the royal family, but once away from prying eyes, he tended to be more direct and even daring. You must not speak of us, who come over here, as cousins, still less as brothers, for we are neither. Wilson exclaimed in a blistering commentary to a lowly British official who later passed the conversation on to his superiors. No, there are only two things which can establish and maintain closer relations between your country and mine, Wilson continued. They are commonality of ideals and of interests. Lloyd George, despite what he seemed to say in his memoirs, was not actually all that impressed, but he was keenly aware that the Americans were an invaluable friend to have at the conference and that likely motivated his later more favourable impression that he gives to us, as well as his more polite behaviour. 
From our early examination of David Lloyd George's profile, we should also be aware that the notion of a League of Nations was not all that far from what the British wanted, and that the idea had been under consideration for some time, and of course, that a British official, or South African official, Jan Smuts, had contributed more than perhaps anyone else to the formulation of the idea. Where Clemenceau had been sceptical about the League's viability, Lloyd George made sure to be enthusiastic and to agree wholeheartedly with Wilson's assertion that it would be useful to sort out the League idea before some final treaty with Germany was created, and in fact to begin formulating the covenant of the League as quickly as possible. Despite this though, Lloyd George remarked with a tinge of disappointment that there was no glow of friendship regarding the American relationship, or of gladness at meeting men who had been partners in a common enterprise and had so narrowly escaped a common danger. Lloyd George was relieved in other aspects, though. His support for the League seemed to make Wilson more inclined to compromise on the freedom of the seas idea and on the future of Germany's colonies. As with all other questions about the looming conference, the unprecedented list of problems, the sheer complexity of the debates and the uncertainty regarding structure all lurked in the background. Should the Congress of Vienna be their guide? Woodrow Wilson had pushed for open covenants openly arrived at as one of his 14 points, a point which he never actually clarified afterwards, but which other people interpreted for him to mean that the media and the public would know everything and would be informed about all that was going on in Paris. Wilson did not intend this at all. He simply wished to avoid the kind of alliance system of yore, the secret alliances, which had helped facilitate the Great War. Contrary to perhaps what he had expected or initially wanted, the secrecy of the Congress of Vienna would be mirrored at the Paris Peace Conference, but very little else was to be similar. Wilson remained convinced that self-determination, a principle he had strenuously avoided defining, would solve the questions of borders far better than notions of conquest or parceling up the divided lands among the victors. Wilson was also fundamentally against colonialism and imperialism, at least the obvious versions of it. Germany, both leaders believed, would surely have to be invited to the conference to take part in the discussions. This was what had been done before, after all. Yet, this conference evidently could not be like the others. The complexities inherent in the issues at stake were advertised by the sheer size of the staffs which all sides were bringing. Britain brought 17 men to Vienna in 1815. In 1919, they were to bring over 1,000. The city of Paris, as we've seen, was bursting at the seams by early December 1918, but even with all the early arrivals, the stream of people never even ceased. Even the President's itinerary was unusual. Talleyrand, Lord Castlereagh, and Metternich had not travelled to one another's capitals or tried to rouse popular opinion to their advantage. Public opinion hadn't even been a factor in 1815, but now it could not be ignored. Furthermore, two of the three main figures in Britain and America had either been undermined or been forced to appeal to the democratic systems of the day in order to reinforce their mandate and policy. The idea in 1815 that democracy could come before national security was the antithesis of the kind of world which then existed. It should come as no surprise that 1815 was very different to 1919, yet to those that assembled and were travelling to Paris a century ago, it was hard to imagine that they were totally without an example from the past. Maps, arguments and debating styles of that old Congress were heavily studied both during and after the Paris Peace Conference in a bid to shed some light on what was being grappled with. This was all part of the learning curve which everyone from David Lloyd George to Woodrow Wilson to George Clemenceau would have to accept. 
They could make their plans now and forge their understandings, but until the whole system opened in January, nobody could say for certain how everything would pan out. In a bid to acquire some additional clarity, Woodrow Wilson prepared to move on from London to his final stop before the Paris Peace Conference opened, Rome. With the perspectives of the three European powers fully attained, the American president hoped that he would be better equipped for what lay ahead for him at the Paris Peace Conference. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.